So if you look at the data as these uptick of restrictions occurred, you saw more infant mortality, you saw more maternal mortality. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner, and that was State Representative Anita Samani, who's also a physician and an increasingly important health policy voice in the Ohio State House. I'm glad to say that today she's adding Prognosis Ohio guest to her already distinguished resume. In our conversation, we get into a wide range of really high stakes policy issues in Ohio, including abortion and reproductive rights, and the impact this wave of anti-transgender legislation is poised to have on Ohioans. We also talk about how Representative Samani has said about balancing her life as a physician legislator, which I know is going to be particularly interesting for our listeners in the health professions or those training to be a health professional. If I might say so myself, I thought it was a pretty good conversation. I know a lot of you are going to enjoy and learn from what Representative Samani's got to say, but I also hope that those who are pushing the misguided bills she discussed will take note as well. Before we turn to the conversation, I'd like to let you know that WCBE, which has been a great supporter of this show, is having a fund drive this week. If you can spare a few bucks, consider supporting the station, and when you do, let them know that you're a Prognosis Ohio listener. Just between you and me, I'm trying to make the case that we should put our entire show on the air in the future, so maybe let them know that you value what we do here. Also, just a reminder to follow us on our social media channels and subscribe to our show in your podcast app or on YouTube, or maybe even both, so you won't miss future episodes. Okay, now to my conversation with state representative and physician Anita Samani. Representative Anita Samani, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is fun. Before getting to policy too deeply and getting wonky Mm -hmm. and all that stuff, I just wanted to start with a little bit of a personal kind of approach here. Uh, You've been in office for a few months now, and I'm sure listeners, including the medical students among our listeners, Mm -hmm. would find it interesting to just hear a little bit about how you've adjusted to balancing being a a physician, being a legislator, uh, and the learning curve that comes from doing this important civic work. So... Just to go back to why I decided to run, I had been doing advocacy work in the reproductive rights space for the last 10 years. Up until Governor Kasich coming into office, Ohio was pretty moderate when it came to abortion rights and reproductive rights. And we started seeing this um, chipping away of reproductive rights starting in about 2011, 2012. The heartbeat bill came before um, the state house several times. And each time there was pushback to the heartbeat bill. And then finally in 2019, unfortunately, it was passed with the idea that, you know, Roe v. Wade was still there at the federal level. And um, long story short, I had been down at the state house. I had testified against a lot of the bills. And the perfect storm happened. You know, we had redistricting. So Rep. Liston was not going to be my rep. We had already heard the Dobbs decision being leaked that, you know, the the Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. So reproductive rights would go back to the states. And that was probably one of the things that pushed that and not having Rep. Liston as my rep pushed me into saying, okay, maybe this is the time to run for office. But before I could do that, I had to, you know, of course, decide, you know, am I going to retire from clinical practice or I'm going to try to juggle both? 
And so that was where um, Leader Rousseau came in, and we talked a lot before I ran for office about, is it practical? You know, my my practice is very different from Rep Liston's practice. As a hospitalist, you can do shift work. Mm-hmm. As a surgeon, your schedule is dependent on the OR schedule. So I had to kind of relook at what what could I do to balance both things. And, you know, if someone's thinking about going into politics as a physician, it's very doable, but you have to learn to, like, almost create silos in your life. So it's just a function of looking at your calendar every night and going, where am I tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I've dealt with as a medical educator is this conversation. And I'm just talking about medical school, since you you know medical yeah. school, and it's something we can, we can get into just for a minute. You know, this idea that I don't have time for that. I don't have any, you know, and medical students are very busy people, but mm-hmm. I always tell them, you know, if you can learn to be disciplined, if you can learn to schedule, mm-hmm. you know, it's not an excuse to not read the newspaper or to not in, look for opportunities where you can right. make a difference because actually there are people who do it and you're one of those examples and Representative Liston is another. Yeah. And I, and I think we all look at it as, oh, we have to read more. But honestly, I get a lot of my news from podcasts. I mean, I hate to say that, but like the Daily, you know, the New York Times, um, you know, there's, there's so many different podcasts. There's local podcasts like yours where you can learn about, you know, Ohio politics. Let's turn to your work in the state house. You yeah. came to this position, your time in the state house, at a really critical time. And I know we like to say that. I mean, we've said that a few times over the past decade or so. The you know, things in Ohio are just super high stakes. We're staring down the end of a COVID nineteen public health emergency. We've talked about that on previous episodes, mm-hmm. with tremendous consequences for Ohioans' yeah. health, um, medical access, economic and social well being, food insecurity, and food insecurity. Yeah. And and we're in the in a budget season that has again high stakes for mm-hmm. health and healthcare in Ohio in a number of ways. Um, you sit on the public health policy committee. I'm wondering, just ha, have you found productive spaces to work? Uh, you know, through that committee, but also across the aisle. Right, you are a member of the minority party in the House, and that comes with a certain position. Right. But how have you navigated this process? How have you figured out where to stake your claims and make your points? Yeah. Um, right now, the focus at the House is on the budget. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, where where is money best spent? So I think for me, looking at how can we improve access for, you know, whether it's for health care, for the children's funds, the different um even something as simple as free lunches, you know, mm-hmm. being able to um, stop shaming kids or just allow for everybody to have access that's on Medicaid to be able to get free lunches. You know, things like that will come through the budget. So I think those are critical areas for me to focus on to be able to say, you know, and and everything connects to everything else, right? Food insecurity. If you're sitting there with a, you know, your stomach's growling and you're hungry, you cannot focus and concentrate on learning. And if you're the kid who goes into the cafeteria and is getting, you know, a free lunch every day, or you aren't getting a free lunch because your parents make a little bit too much for Medicaid, but they also can't afford to pay for your free lunches, you know, that, that can be 
an area where you can be shamed into, you know, not being able to eat that day. Um, but that, you know, and I, it's a lot of focus on food, but again, that leads to, you know, the next problem of learning. And if you're not learning, then you can't improve your socioeconomic status if you can't stay and focus on school. Right. I mean, the you know, health policy is incredibly holistic today. Yeah. And um, some people find that daunting and just like, I can't do all these things. But to my mind, for people who, you know, I think about my students and others that I see around the community who really care about just driving better outcomes. Right. If that is your main goal, then you can't afford to not look at these things and to, to adapt this new model. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, people who are, live in poverty, live in food deserts. You know, you think about racism as a public health crisis. You think about gun violence or gun trauma as a public health crisis. You know, everything connects to your health. So you also joined the General Assembly at a time when abortion rights and reproductive freedoms generally are, let's just say, under attack. As an obstetrician gynecologist with 30 years of experience, you bring a really important perspective to this. What are some of the effects that maybe people aren't talking about? And I'm really interested in what is the piece of the conversation that you can bring that nobody else necessarily can bring within the current General Assembly? So. Again, disinformation, misinformation has led to a lot of almost this idea that abortion is on demand. Abortion is never on demand. You know, abortion is something that um, if you think about the second trimester abortions that people always talk about, and those abortions are often wanted pregnancies that will have a dismal outcome either for the fetus or the mother. Mm-hmm. It is never someone who walks in at 20 weeks and says, tired of being pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant anymore. Usually it's in conjunction with a physician's recommendation. I mean, I think of patients I've had over the years that developed breast cancer and needed to determine, you know, do I do I continue the pregnancy with the risk of the fetus? Do I terminate the pregnancy, get treated and then try to get pregnant again? Those those dilemmas are real, you know, and those are things that we're not talking about in this space. Um, the one that drives me absolutely bonkers is this idea of, um, and I hate using the term, but, you know, partial births mm-hmm. or partial partial birth abortions or you know, the, the layperson's term. Yeah. Nobody is doing that. It's not a medical terminology. It's not a medical procedure. Nobody is letting a fetus or a baby that's born alive killing them or yeah. you know that is not a thing that happens in medicine and it's just horrible to see that you know perpetuated yeah and so i think that again you know the reality is we need to talk about not the idea that you know there are these cases where abortions are needed or wanted for medical reasons but the idea that Infant and maternal mortality rates went up in Ohio in direct correlation with the abortion restrictions. So if you look at the data, you will see that as these uptick of restrictions occurred, you saw more infant mortality. You saw more maternal mortality. And again, people pinpoint and say, well, you know, it's it's the, the those numbers are in the African-American community. But again, it's it doesn't matter. The, the what matters is that we're seeing women dying. You know, we're seeing 
this uptick where not only are they dying, but the outcomes are much more severe. So examples, you know, um, the woman that comes in at 18 to 20 weeks, her water breaks, and every single hospital in the state has an example of this type of patient. Water breaks, there is a fetal heartbeat, it's pre-viable, right? It's 18 to 20 weeks. In the past, we would have said, you know, the, the safest thing to do is to induce your labor, deliver the fetus, and then, you know, you get antibiotics and you get care. Now, what has happened is you consult legal. You don't know when the mother's life is in danger. At what point does that happen? So the woman gets sicker and sicker and sicker, needs more resources because they end up in the ICU because they potentially become septic. Finally, you get to the point where you can say, or legal can say, okay, this is threatening the woman's life. Then what happens? You know, she's she's septic. She may have other organ failures, you know, whether it's liver failure, kidney failure, um, that, that can cause permanent damage yeah. and impact her next pregnancy. There have been times where people become so infected that you cannot save their uterus. And so the only thing you can do is a hysterectomy and remove the uterus. So what did that do for that person? They not only lost that pregnancy, but now they lost the ability to have a future pregnancy. So these these are the outcomes that I think we have to talk about when we look at reproductive rights being chipped away at. You mentioned partial birth abortion, uh, you know, and, and also the language of on demand. I mean, I find the language that we use to talk about abortion so insulting in so yeah. many ways. And it, it strikes me too, as you're describing this, you know, the same people who really pushed these kinds of bills, these kinds of anti-abortion bills, are the same people who have been yelling for a long time about legal exposure, malpractice, you know, tort reform, mm-hmm. things like this. And what I've seen is that we are increasingly throwing new physicians in our state into this incredibly scary legal environment which is increasingly criminalized, not quite yet in Ohio, mm-hmm. but there's talk. Oh, no, there is. There, is, yeah. there are penalties. There are, there are fourth-degree misdemeanors or fourth-degree felonies. There are currently penalties if you don't report that you did an abortion or you don't report it correctly. Right, yeah. Thanks for the clarification. Yeah. I mean, I, what I'm saying is that compared to some states, yes. like Ohio is still on a journey yes. of absolutely criminalizing abortion. And, and well, I think criminalizing, we're headed there. criminalizing mothers, you yeah. know, that's happening in other states where the woman who gets an abortion or the person who helps the person get an abortion can be, their behavior can be criminalized. But I think that's what I see as a huge paradox mm-hmm. in in what is happening in Ohio. So consider the state of the state when Governor DeWine talked about mental health and prioritizing children's needs and the the need to put more funding towards mental health. So in that same legislative assembly, we now have bills, for example, the HB6, the anti, um, anti-trans sports bill. We're talking about six trans women who have played sports in Ohio. All of these already have been accounted for by different organizations in terms of how they handle these athletes. But for six out of 400,000 athletes, we're trying to create a bill. What does that do for the mental health of those kids or the trans female who wants to participate in sports but isn't being allowed to? What happens to their mental health? What happens to the mental health 
of kids that now have to do shooter drills because we now have another bill, HB 51, that, I mean, again, it's not a, not strictly about school shootings, but it's about the idea of loosening gun restrictions yeah. by saying, okay, Ohio is going to be, quote, one of those sanctuary cities or um, basically it's a gun violence expansion act because the federal laws would not apply to Ohio. So that, and then you think about, you know, every, there's so many bills that, that we're looking at right now that actually impact mental health, that impact the access to health care. And it's a paradox. So why are we putting forth bills that impact the things that we're trying to improve? Yeah. Hi, this is Mike Foley, a longtime staff member at WCBE, one of the proud partners of Prognosis Ohio and Dan Skinner. Everything you count on from WCBE, trusted news, curated music, the podcasts in our hub known as the podcast experience, they all rely on your support. In these moments of challenge, possibility, and progress, the WCBE you know, trust, and count on remains more relevant to your life than ever. WCBE and its partners embrace each day with freshly inspired energy, and donors like you are the force that powers us all toward a better tomorrow. We ask you to meet these momentous times with your generous support during our fundraiser so that WCBE can meet all those that follow. Please become a sustaining member today and donate at wcbe.org. Thanks for listening and contributing to WCBE. You know, I mean, we've talked about it on the show as well. You know, people hear the governor's state of the state address and, you know, there is a lot of impressive stuff in there. There's a lot of hope for people who Mm -hmm. care about mental health, who care about improved health outcomes in the state. And as you point out, I mean, you say it's a paradox. It's also kind of a hypocrisy, right? (laughs) Yes. When you look at the legislative agenda, and I was doing that before you came in this morning, you know, you just, well, this is not what a legislative agenda looks like that actually is going to take mental health seriously or maternal and child health. Right. I want to ask you, though, not that it matters entirely, but as a physician, you are concerned with an outcome. You want Mm -hmm. people to be safe, to be healthy, to be well. Do you think the people who are championing these bills know what the outcomes are? Is this in bad faith? Is this ignorance? Like, to how do you, because as a physician, you see real people in your office. Yeah. And I worry and I fear that maybe the people who are passing these bills just don't even have contact with these people. Or if they do, they don't care. And, and, and I think that matters to me because we want people representing us in our state who care about outcomes, not just the showboating piece. So when I was running for office, I found it very interesting to recognize that Ohio is not as Republican as it seems when you look at the breakdown of registered Republicans and Democrats. However, gerrymandering has led to this situation where we don't pick our politicians. Our politicians are picking, you know, cherry-picking districts that allow them to win. So the cynic in me thinks, you know, this is this is bad faith that they're doing what they think is best for corporate donors or what they think is best for, you know, raising money, for perpetuating culture wars. Um, the person who went into politics to make things better, 
thinks that it's ignorance and maybe if they understand the impact that they're having on real lives that we could move forward and do some good things in politics. This is the, the great <laughs> hope of teaching, right? This idea <laughs> that we can point things out and maybe yeah. some new thinking will occur. Yeah. So you've already anticipated one of the things I was going to ask you about, which is democratic responsiveness in the state. We, we've talked with David Pepper, uh, former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party on this show, and he's doing some really interesting work just kind of unpacking the history of democratic responsiveness and autocracy. And, of course, the assault on voting rights. Um, that is just it's a core civic issue that's going to affect every part of our policymaking. Um Right now, Republicans are taking steps to require a 60% vote to approve constitutional amendments, which is clearly intended to make it hard for issues with popular support, um, like abortion. Mm -hmm. And people forget that uh, basic abortion rights are very popular in Ohio and around the country. But they're trying to make that more difficult to, 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 um, to address, to enshrine in our Constitution. Can you draw the connection for me specifically in the health area? I mean, how do you think about democratic responsiveness, anti-democratic policy, like gerrymandering, things like that, and health? So going back to this idea of a 60% or 60, I think it's 60% majority in order to pass a constitutional amendment, ironically, it's only going to take 51 votes to get that passed, mm -hmm. right? At the legislative level, we still do things by a simple majority. So that strikes me as sort of hypocritical again and, and ironic. Any amendment that's passed has never hit that 60% mark. Mm -hmm. When you look back, you know, the, the marijuana, for example, the marijuana amendment, um, part of the reason I don't think it passed is that that was one that brought in people from outside of the state corporate dollars to try and push that amendment when Ohio wasn't ready for it. And we now have medical marijuana available, but I think the next step is now going to the idea of making marijuana legal from from every level. Mm -hmm. So that is that a healthcare issue? It can be a healthcare issue when you look at the things that we use marijuana to treat um, and some of the newer things that we're looking at. Reproductive rights, again, it is a very popular thing. We we saw it happen in red states. We saw it happen in blue states. Next door in Michigan, you know, even when they needed signatures here in Ohio to get the language to certify it to be on the ballot, they needed a thousand signatures. They got seven thousand signatures. So mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing when you. It's not a it's not a partisan issue. It's a bipartisan issue. Healthcare is important to Republicans and Democrats. It, it's a bipartisan issue, but we could have a blue wave in this state and still end up with a almost supermajority in the state house because of the way our legislative districts are drawn. And I just wonder, you know, in terms of the health outcomes that are tied to that, I wonder if some legislators in our state are kind of afraid to know what their constituents think about these issues because they're representing something else. Right. In a perfect world, we would have perfect districts that would be balanced and would represent, like, the politicians would represent the people. Um, what we have right now, unfortunately, is an imperfect world. But I think, again, you know, there are groups looking at how do we create fair districts. Um, as an example, Michigan had the same issue. 
and went through a redistricting process that involved an independent commission. Um, the reason I know so much about that is my son was involved with it, but um, it's called Voters Not Politicians, and they looked at you know creating an independent board that was not made up of politicians. Unfortunately, here, part of the compromise ended up being a board that then ignored the constitutional amendment that was designed to you know create fair districts. So it's it's kind of back to the drawing board. It's back to what what will create those fair districts? Whether, you know, we get back to truly what is Ohio, what reflects the makeup of Ohio, mm-hmm. or at least get to a point where you don't see the new district I represent is drawn with so much precision that they drew in the Republican candidate who ran against me, they drew out the person who had put her ballot in to run for office. With each map that was drawn, they like really, really worked on making sure people were in versus out. Um, I Nobody knew I was gonna run for office. I didn't even know I was gonna run for office. <laughs> so again, it was one of those things that, you know, in order to, um, change districts, you have to you have to create new maps. I want to come back to in a final question here, just to come back a little bit to an issue that you already raised, which is the issue of uh, transgender rights and, and and transgender health in in Ohio. Um, you have a, again, you have a unique voice here, right? You've provided gender affirming yes. care. Uh, this is not just uh, an abstract issue for you. And we have uh, some bills that are just taking aim at this population in a really um, you know, just disgusting way, in my view. And we're going to be linking to some of the bills in the show notes. But you know, I, I want you to sort of talk a little bit about this issue in the same way we talked about the abortion issue. What are people getting wrong about this issue? What, what do they not know because they maybe have never sat in a room with somebody who needs care right. um, that, that, that's driving this policy debate? So number one for physicians, med students, you know, it does criminalize gender affirming care. So in the same parallel to abortion care, it is going to criminalize what is standard right now, what is standard care. When you actually look at what is gender affirming care, you know, where it's a patient-centered care, it is it is not about the physician. Is it a it, it, it's more about understanding, you know, at what point did a did a child recognize, you know, that whether you know whether you want to call it different, whether you look at you know they didn't feel comfortable in their body, most of the time when I ask people about it, I hear essentially what happens with puberty, essentially what happens with normal childhood development. You know, around you know five, six, eight, you start to know boys are boys, girls are girls. You know, however you want to look at that. But those that small subset will say that was the point where I started recognizing that maybe I was different from my brothers and sisters or my friends because I didn't feel comfortable in my skin. And then at puberty, another sort of conflicted time for everybody, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, your hormones are raging, you're starting to be attracted, you know, whether you're attracted to the same sex or the opposite sex, or, you know, now we have non-binary, binary, you know, there's there's a broader consensus of what makes up gender and sexual identity. So all those things start 
at a much younger age than these bills would speak to. You know, the idea that you cannot provide gender-affirming care until they're 18 goes back to the idea of mental health. Again, if you restrict someone from living their true life and you don't address the issues that they have or you don't support them in their journey, that increases the risk for suicide and increases the risk of mental health issues. And we see that over and over again. We see that in studies that have shown increased risks of suicide or increased suicide rates in youth that don't get you know familial support or any type of support, whether it be in the school, whether it be through their friends or through their parents, you know. And um, this is another issue, by the way, that comes up in the State of the State Address. I mean, Governor DeWine talks about suicide as yeah. he should be, but then that does not connect to what's going on legislatively with these anti-trans yes. bills. And, and to me, it just, it's mind-boggling that we can't connect the dots and say, why do we have this increase in mental health issues? Well, we have a society that doesn't support people in poverty. We have a society that doesn't support universal child care. So we don't support women. We don't support single families. You know, we have bills that think that we the nuclear family is mother, father, children when families come in all shapes and sizes. Just look around the state. I mean, that's a clear indication that people may not know their own constituents. Right, right. Yeah. So I do, again, I look at the dots and I think, why are we pushing bills that would decrease the ability of people to have good mental health? Well, you're bringing a really important voice to the state house. So um, I'm looking forward to following the, the good work you're going to be doing. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. And I hope people listen to your podcast because you always give good information and insightful questions. Thank you so much. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn and Mike Foley, curator of the WCB podcast experience, worked the recording equipment in the WCB studios. I'd like to give a special shout out to Hannah Ross and Representative Samani's office for helping to arrange the interview. Make sure you're subscribed to Prognosis Ohio so you don't miss our episode with Dr. Rosie Bowder, the second installment of our series with the Ohio Journal of Public Health. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCB Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests as well as topics or ways we can improve the show. Thanks for listening.